Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to Sox Machine Live. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Wednesday night, August 21st, 2019, as we are streaming live on Mixer.com slash Sox Machine. Thanks for joining us as the Chicago White Sox just wrapped up a series win in Minneapolis. Yes, the White Sox won a road series against the Mighty Twins. We'll recap that series, plus share our thoughts about two stories playing out in the public for the White Sox at the moment. One, Rick Renteria's thoughts about sabermetrics and his style configuring the lineups. Uh, which I know is always a very popular topic for White Sox fans. Uh, The second is Jose Abreu still making his case to be brought back to Chicago for 2020 and beyond, but now he's involving the chairman, Jerry Reinsdorf, in his public comments. At the end of the show, we'll preview the upcoming home series as the Texas Rangers visit for a four-game showdown, and the White Sox get Yoan Makata back, which is very exciting. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and co-host the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. Wow, a series win at Minneapolis. I was not expecting that. I was not either, although it it helped that the way they lined up their pitchers, Giolito coming in at the end in a rubber match, you have to like the odds when that's the case. I think if Giolito started the first game and they got blown out 14-4 in the second game, it might be a little bit tougher climb to get that final game but Giolito showed up and yeah he showed up <laughs> that's that's one way to put it I mean having to avoid Jose Breos is always a good thing for the Chicago White Sox as Breos is already terrific but he just seems to dominate against the White Sox but the White Sox were able to beat Kyle Gibson that's a big positive 
Tuesday, let's just skip over that game. Uh, and then Wednesday's game, they win 4 to nothing. and the big highlight is Lucas Giolito as he dominated in that game. A complete game shutout, only allowed three hits against one of the best offenses in Major League Baseball, striking out 12 and didn't walk a single hitter. His season ERA is now 3.2, and he has 36 strikeouts in his last three starts. Giolito is the first right-handed pitcher for the White Sox to strike out 10-plus hitters in three straight starts since... Edwin Jackson from 2010. Hat tip to Chris Kampka of NBC Sports for tweeting that stat nugget. Giolito has 194 strikeouts over 151 and two-thirds innings. That's 69 more strikeouts than he had all of last year. He is 14-6 and six with the win-loss record for those that still uh, want to give importance to win-loss record. He has a very attractive win-loss record. He's currently fourth in baseball reference in war. He's 6th in Fangraph's War and 7th in Baseball Prospectus Warp. All these rankings are for the American League. First question, Jim. Has Lucas Giolito attained ace status? I think I hold ace status as a higher bar, I think, across the league than a lot of people. I would say he's throwing ace-like performances. Like this, you know, the way he showed up against the Twins today ace-like, the way he shut out the Astros, ace-like, even the way he battled, um, you know, in his previous outing where he struck out 13 without his best stuff or with, you know, under constant pressure and he found a way to strike out 13. That's, uh, that's ace-like. So that's all there. Um, but I remember, I'm trying to think how many years ago it was, I think it was Kevin Goldstein maybe before he got the Astros job. So a long time ago, but I remember there being an online discussion, might've been an article talking about like what constitutes an ace, and I want to say this is even before Chris Sale like really made his mark as one. And they, they said like multiple 200 inning seasons where you have like a certain ERA or ERA plus and so forth. And I kind of agreed with that. But given how hard it is for starting pitchers to accrue 200 innings, I wonder if we have to lower that down. So I'm inclined to say no, not yet, because I, I guess, would you call Shane Bieber an ace? No, I, I think there's there. I, I think there's two theories when it comes to claiming aces one theory is that every team has an ace your best starting pitcher is your ace I, yeah i don't abide by that i one. don't either i do like the exclusive type of company where you it, it's it is a level that you attain as a starting pitcher not and it's just not a one-year deal it is something that you consistently do year after year after year. I think the best example is Justin Verlander. Look at his career. I mean, and he's still an ace for the Houston Astros. He's still putting up amazing numbers, even in his late thirties. So I don't think Lucas Giolito is quite an ace yet, but maybe you and I can come up with a standard on what it will take for him to reach that level. I would say maybe, you know, if he rolls the whole season like this, um, you know, not like shutting out every team here on out, but, you know, keeping his ERA in the low threes and working seven innings a start or six plus innings a start, um, it seems like he would have laid a foundation for it. And then if he picks up on that and carries it into the, you know, well into the next season, like I'd say by the all-star break, then I think I would feel more comfortable slapping that label on them. But I have a high standard, I think, for the label itself. So let's say, would you consider an ace having multiple seasons, so two or more, 
of 30 plus starts, an ERA lower than 3.5, and 200 strikeouts. That sounds fair. I think strikeouts are the least important part of it to me because there are some guys like Dallas Keuchel. Yeah, he won the Cy Young without getting a ton of strikeouts. And there are some guys who are able to do that. Um, so I, I wouldn't necessarily say 200 strikeouts, but I would say if not 200 strikeouts, then like elite either ground ball rate or you know contact suppression rate or something like that where it shows up where he's not just getting... It's clearly not luck at this point. Right, because this is Giolito's first great year. And it is a great year for Lucas Giolito. He does this again next year in 2020. Most definitely, Lucas Giolito is an ace. And again, if you do subscribe to the other theory that every team has an ace, and it is that team's best starting pitcher, then yeah, Lucas Giolito, based on that definition, is most definitely the White Sox ace. I do subscribe to the theory that, you know, some teams could have multiple aces, like the Astros with Justin mm-hmm. Verlander and Garrett Cole, while some teams don't have an ace, like Baltimore. The Orioles don't have an ace right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, Dallas Keuchel, when he won the Scion, struck out 216 batters. It's the only 200 strikeout season that he had. So that's what I'm going to go with, folks. Two-plus two years of sub-3.5 ERA with 30-plus starts and over 200 strikeouts. And Giolito is already on his way, uh, one, accomplishing that this season. And I mentioned as far as his war rankings in the American League. Again, fourth in baseball reference with Mike Miner having a ridiculous war at 7.2. And I think baseball reference needs to take a look at that. Fangraphs, he's sixth right now. And he's seventh in baseball prospectus for the American League at Warp. Do you think that Giolito can pitch his way to getting enough votes to finish in the top three in the American League Cy Young voting, Jim? I think for him it would take um, you know a fair amount of wins. Like I think he would need to go on a win streak uh, the rest of the way just to have a leg up in a certain category. Um, you know, if he keeps his ERA in the low threes, I could see him getting like top ten, but like finalist, no, not quite. Who would you have ahead of him right now in the American League? Well, I'm peaking right now because I was, I was looking at Garrett Cole, you know, talking about our ace um, discussion. Mm-hmm. Like, he's somebody who I think is an ace now. He wasn't an ace last year, even though he went 15-5 and with Houston, 2.88 ERA, 200 innings, uh, finished fifth in the Cy Young voting. Like, that was a good foundation. But now he's, with the year he's having right now, now I think he's cemented that ace status. So I think that's where Giolito right now is in that, like, late first season with Houston Garrett Cole stage. So that's what I'll go with for there. But I'm looking, I'm just looking at a quick, uh, do you have a pick? Because I'm searching the leaderboard. Make sure I don't forget anybody. Well, right now, yeah. So, okay. So writing down as far as names, like again, with baseball reference with Mike Miner, that's the only one that Miner's ahead of Giolito. And when you look at fan graphs and you look at baseball prospectus, you got Lance Lynn. Lance Lynn is second in baseball reference. He's first in war for Fangraphs, and he's behind Verlander in warp for Baseball Prospectus. Uh, you got Verlander third in Baseball Reference. You got Verlander fifth for Fangraphs, and you got Verlander first in Baseball Prospectus. So I am confident, insane, that you have Justin Verlander and Lance Lynn as your top two guys right now in the American League Young. The other guy that I'm thinking is ahead of Lucas Giolito is Charlie Morton for Tampa Bay. Mm-hmm. 
Morton's third right now in baseball prospectus warp. He's second in fan graphs, and he's fifth behind Giolito in baseball reference. And I wonder, is that the target? Does Giolito, if we're comparing players here to keep us, continue to have interest in the rest of the season, something to watch for, is that like a race? Can Lucas Giolito pitch well enough to get ahead of Charlie Morton as far as across the stat line? And will that impress voters enough to get him into the top three? Well, I think one thing that's going to be tricky for Giolito, although this, this start certainly helped, he now has over 150 innings. But he was about two starts short of other starters just because of rain and because of his injury that knocked him out for a couple weeks. So, like, you know, when you compare him to Verlander, Verlander's got, uh, well, now it's 18 innings. It was 25, um, if I'm doing the math right. No, 27. So it was 27. Now it's 18 innings head start on him. And I think we saw that with the discussion last year between Blake Snell and Corey Kluber and, and all these guys just trying to figure out the balance of workload. And I think when you have Verlander who leads the league in wins and he's got uh, you know, 170 innings right now uh, leading the way. And Shane Bieber is another one I think is going to be uh, one to watch for because he's just an inning behind uh, Verlander in the innings total. And I think if uh, all those guys are in the same neighborhood with ERA, I don't think like war or FIP or anything like that really factors into larger voting. I think it does affect some voters, but I think we look at voting patterns and the way guys finish. I, I think uh, innings and ERA do a lot of the heavy lifting. I think I would still say like Bieber because of his innings edge and similar ERA might be a step ahead of Giolito. So I could see him being like fifth behind okay. Morton, even Garrett Cole being on a in, you know, postseason, I think doesn't really affect the conversation as much as it does for MVP, but I could see being a tiebreaker too. And Garrett Cole having 226 strikeouts and Verlander having 228 like these are just all big jumps. So I think given how much time Giolito missed relative to the other candidates, I would see him having a, having a hard time getting past uh, Cole, Verlander, Morton. <laughs> that's not just a one team. That's ridiculous. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> Lynn and then Bieber too. So I could see him being fifth or sixth right now. Yeah, Charlie Morton for the Rays has a 2.67 FIP on the season, leading the American League. So if you do have more sabermetric inclined voters i think morton will definitely that that's that's a big gap for giolito to climb giolito's fit before wednesday's game is at 3.37 so i'm sure it will drop a little bit but he still has some ground to make up the fact that we're even debating can lucas giolito be in the top three of the american league scion when at before the season we were having conversations jim of if giolito has a bad april will he be optioned to charlotte (laughs) Yeah. We've come a long way. Yeah. It's like, you know, when, when talking about whether he's an ace or whether he's a uh, um, Cy Young candidate, it's just like, this is the weirdest possible conversation to be nitpicking. <laughs> just thinking, yeah, I'm thinking if I told my 2018 self this, that a year from now when Giolito, you know, if I'm, if I'm talking to my past self who just watched Giolito post uh, the worst ERA and terrible walk and strikeout numbers, um, and then saying like, we're going to be arguing about where he finishes in the Cy Young voting. Um, I probably would have shot my future self. <laughs> just something, something happened with the timeline. Something terrible occurred to where a lot of you know a lot of, a lot of people just quit baseball or something. To where Gilio somehow rose to the top. But no, he's done it all himself, and uh, it's it's uh, really uh, a testament to his skills. And the other thing with uh, uh, Gilio that stands out, he's got three complete games and two shutouts. And Bieber is the only one who can claim both those things. 
Yeah, I mean, what is it's? Did Chris Sale ever have three complete games in a season? I want to say yeah, but let me see. Okay. Yeah, yes, he had four and six in 2016. Oh, he had uh, 2013. Uh, in 2013, he had four complete games. In 2016, he had six. Oh my gosh, I totally forgot about 2016 with his six complete games. Yeah, but he only had one shutout, so he did pitch like he. Um, he's only had three career shutouts total. So Gilito's got two shutouts right now, and and uh, this season, and Chris Sale has three for his entire career. Has have you? Do you remember ever witnessing such a complete turnaround in any White Sox player that we have witnessed from Lucas Gilito from his 2018 self to now, where we are? Honestly, comparing him to Justin Verlander and Garrett Cole, uh, which Garrett Cole is going to get like a seven-year, $200 million contract this offseason. Now, the only one who comes to mind is Adam Dunn, and that's just because he was historically awful. He wasn't that great the next season, but he was useful and contributed and, and kind of gave the White Sox a year they thought they might be getting two years into his deal. Um, so that's one where just, it's similar how bad he started from and the amount of difference from, uh, his 2013 to his 2014, but it doesn't have Giolito's, you know, it has, it shares the same, uh, basically basement, <laughs> uh, for his, the year before, but I don't think it soars nearly as high. I think it's more, uh, a done season was a modest success, whereas Giolito's is, uh, possibly award winning or at least under award consideration. I mean, he's by far the most improved player in major league baseball. If they had that award, Lucas Giolito slam dunk winner, move on to the next award. Uh, But I, they don't have that award. Yeah. Comeback player of the year. Is that what it is? Do they have that award in major league baseball? They had it for Adam Dunn. Huh? Yeah, like he won it. So I'm just seeing if they still have it. Cause sometimes these, uh... I know they have it for NFL and I know they have it for the NBA. I, I did not think that they had something official for Major League Baseball, but as Jim looks that up and confirms whether or not they do. Yes. David Price was the winner last year. Mike Moustakis the year before. Usually there's an injury involved. Um, so this would be the uh, uh, bizarre case where, uh, yeah, it's it was not an injury. Well, I, I still think he qualifies. I mean, to go from the worst starting pitcher in the American League to being top six, I, I that's quite the comeback. Quite the comeback. His ERA could be, at the end of this season, Jim, three full runs lower than last year. Yeah. He had a 6.13 ERA in 2018. He's at 3.2 right now. Yeah, I think Adam Dunn won the unofficial comeback play, like maybe like Sporting News or something like that. He didn't win the official one. Mariano Rivera won that one that year because of an injury. Gotcha. So there could be an injury case where somebody comes back from, uh, you know, and reestablish himself. But I think Giolito probably deserves it more than anybody because that's really, as you mentioned, you know, he was a candidate to be optioned if things didn't go well. And he was the worst qualifying pitcher of the year before. So I don't know what's come back here than that, even if there's an injury. Well, Lucas Giolito is awesome. Let's talk about a topic that is not as awesome. And this comes from manager... Rick Renteria, and and this was written in The Athletic by James Fegan, and what Fegan wrote is, perhaps because questioning every lineup decision has become a regularity this season, Renteria's response was a little more pointed than anticipated. And this is the quote from Rick Renteria. 
about his lineup decisions. Quote, comfort in actual conversations that I have with the players. A lot of it has to be trust. Most players want to go through just statistically based decisions. Okay, I'm not that guy. I trust myself and the things I do. I think there's a balance. I don't discount numbers. Never have, never will. But I'm a balanced guy. I'm not going to appeal to the sabermetrician on a daily basis. Never will. Never want to. Not my intent. If they don't like it, I don't really give a shit. I do things because it's the right thing for me to do. I know everybody has their opinion. Maybe it puts me on the outs. That's fine. But I'm going to do what I think I need to do with the guys I have. My takeaways from Ricky's comments. The White Sox management provides a lot of fodder to be used against them. My second thought is, I get a sense, Jim, that Renteria, from his quote, and this comes a day after having John Jay, of all players, back cleanup, is a bit tired of having to try and figure out constructing a lineup with the 25 guys he has available. Now, the White Sox this season only have five players with a weighted runs created plus of over 100. Again, 100 is league average. And that is Mankata, Anderson, James McCann, Jose Abreu, and Ryan Goins. But Goins is in quite the hitting drought, and he's going to fall below that level. So he's got four guys. Unless Jimenez can catch fire again and he can get above 100, he's right around 97 right now, still below league average. But again, Renteria is only going to have four to five above average hitters to work with. And I I just get a sense from his comments that that is a big sticking point right now and a pain for him to overcome managing this team. Yeah, that was more or less my reaction is just that there's no real optimal lineup. And and part of it is like, yeah, as I wrote um, this morning that I just don't really care too much about lineups i think maybe if the white Sox were closer to contending and he had somebody like i'm trying to think of who would be like say if yolmer sanchez were the only weak link and for whatever reason rick renterio were batting him second because he's a good handler of the bat and a good bunter and you know the the you know yohan makata's batting fourth and an above average tim anderson's batting fifth and mookie betts is batting sixth you know just some some kind of like weird combination of like a uh, terrible hitter in front of great hitters that that would annoy me um, but I, you know, when you have a lineup that, as you mentioned, is, you know, four good guys in the lineup and, you know, if James McCann has to sit because of a day game after a night game, it gets even, uh, you know, he's not in the picture. Um, there's just really no good way to shape it. You can front load the lineup if you want, and that's, I guess, fine. But then you have a whole bunch of righties lined up and they all can be exploited. And there's, you know, and in his first couple attempts to get a lefty DH, you know, between Yonder Alonso and Daniel Palka, that didn't work. So, there's just really no way to make it work. And this is usually the time in a rebuilding manager's career where they tend to part ways or his message gets lost or, um, you know, the losing takes, you know, takes a toll on a lot of people, takes a toll on the, the front office, takes a toll on the fans, uh, players and so forth. And, and I think Renteria to his credit has done a good job of not losing the clubhouse. You haven't heard anything about how players, um, you know, dislike him or, or, or feel like they're being treated unfairly. I think he's giving the guys who need playing time, playing time, and he's just making do with the rest filling out a lineup card. So, I, you know, if, if that's the kind of conversations and decision-making that, that helps him just uh, cross days off the calendar and get one year closer to having better players, <laughs> I can sympathize with that, and I think that's fine. You know, I, I he didn't say, like, uh, you know, 
you can throw the numbers in the river. Um, I'm not looking at them. You know, he didn't uh, reject um, you know, information. He just said that I have my, my reasons. And, you know, when you're talking about who bets fourth or fifth, you know, or seventh in a, in a season where you have guys who are overcoming historically bad splits, like Tim Anderson, learning how to hit right-handed breaking ball is cool. But I can see why it would take Renteria a while to trust that and uh, believe that he's not at risk of overexposing um, a guy like Anderson to a good starter's breaking balls from the right side. Uh, I, I can understand where he's coming from and why he's not, you know, trying to shove guys up the order until, you know, it's become vastly, um, uh, you know, or I guess the sample size is big enough to where it's quite clear that they're transformed hitters. You know, some people might do it differently, but I understand where he's coming from. So I didn't see that big of a problem with it. And he didn't say like all, you know, I, I think he'll probably get in trouble with some circles just because, you know, anytime you attack numbers, you get certain people who are still fighting like the Saber 1.0 battles where, you know, all baseball men are idiots and there are better ways to do it. But I think we're advanced enough, I think, in, in terms of, how much information we know the teams have that we can trust that some information is filtering it into the, uh, into his decision-making. And he just has other reasons to make these relatively trivial alterations that maybe go a little bit against the book. Yeah. When this team starts competing or we think that they should be a competing team based on the talent that is in Chicago, Renteria is going to be more under the microscope with his in-game decision-making mm-hmm. when, when the White Sox have better talent. My concern is from his quotes and his attitude about sabermetrics that he can look at the numbers, but if his gut tells him to go in this direction, like laying down a bunt to move a runner from first to second base, he's still going to make that bunt call. And just watching 450 games managed by him with the White Sox, it's already been 450 games, by the way, Jim, that Rick Renteria has managed the White Sox. I just think he prefers a style of baseball to be played that relies on contact when he doesn't have a lineup that hits for contact. Speed when he has very few speed players at the moment, but that will get better with Luis Robert and Nick Magical coming. But just the way that the game baseball is played today, I feel like it's largely ineffective in today's environment. And I don't think that's really going to improve no matter who is on the roster that I think I will always have a conflict on the way that Rick Renteria will want his White Sox teams to play, especially offensively. Yeah, I can see that being the case. Um, there have there have been times where I think it was the the end of his first season where the bunting dried up and they were actually playing pretty well and they finished the year in really good form where everybody was really excited and thanking Renteria at the following Sox Fest about how good of a job he did. And then I think he just gets into ruts and it's really hard to know... Hmm. Um, yeah, I can see where you're coming from. And I would say like, if I had to bet, I would say like, yeah, he'll probably always bunt more than the average manager, but we, we just don't quite know yet because the offense has been that bad. And like Yomer Sanchez bunting like that, that suicide squeezy called, I didn't actually mind that call because the swings he was taking on O2 to barely foul off balls in his eyes. They're just going to keep going back up there. If he was going to do anything, he was going to pop out. At that point, I could see where Renteria is coming from and making that bunt call. So, you know, I think, you know, if he's making those kind of calls where he is reacting to the game and reacting to just the swings that are happening, then, yeah, yeah, that's fine. But, yeah, these these automated playing for one run, I think that's really what I'm watching for um, when it comes to decision making is just mm-hmm. – 
playing for one run in you know too early in a game or against too good of an offense or playing for the tie on the road you know that kind of weird stuff that I think is uh it gives me more pause than I guess bunting in general and I think the more he plays for you know he hasn't done in a while I think the Phillies game was the last time he did but the the more he plays for one run in situations where one run doesn't really help or um you you, you want to <laughs> really you want to score three or four at that point to feel good about your standing in the game. Um, that's where I think I would feel um, less optimistic that Renteria really has the uh, a good picture in mind in terms of what a successful 2019 offense looks like. But uh, yeah, it's going to take uh, quite a few players before uh, we really know what it looks like when he's managing a good, solid one through at least one through seven, one through eight offense. I just, I'm looking forward to those conversations though, Jim, because I don't know about you, but I'm getting tired of talking about four hitters in a lineup that yeah. have a weighted runs created plus below 70. Like, yeah. I can't wait to pull out the run expectancy chart and the win probability added when we really narrowed it down when the games actually matter and they're on the line. We're not there yet talking about the Chicago White Sox. And I just get a feeling with Rick Renteria that he wants to be there. I mean, this isn't the first time this season that he has stressed that he wants the team to be in a competitive mindset and that he wants the team to continue to move forward. And I think with him always being asked, why did you have this guy in the lineup? And this is his reaction. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people in baseball media that thought it was very refreshing uh, to hear comments like this from Rick Renteria. And again, I, I think maybe even himself is a little bit frustrated at the hand that Rick Hahn has given him at the moment, because let's face it, everyone, everyone in baseball knows what Luis Robert is doing in Charlotte. Could you imagine being a manager of a major league baseball team? And knowing that you have this supreme talented player waiting in the wings and you're being told to wait, even for the most competitive people, even if he is understanding of the rebuild process, I'm sure Rick Renteria is in the boat that a lot of White Sox fans are. And let's call him up and see what he can do. Let me play with this new toy. But unfortunately, he and all of us are going to have to wait uh, a little bit longer to see Luis Robert in Chicago. Now, another player uh, that's trying to leverage the media, and this time it's to get a new contract, uh, has been Jose Abreu. Now, Jose Abreu, he's done this multiple times over the season. He's backing up his talk, though, with his bat. He's having a very good August, and he's made it very clear that he wants to be with the White Sox forever. And if he could, he would sign himself. I don't know how the logistics would work for that, Jim. Uh, if he just showed up and it was retraining for the White Sox without a contract. Um, Seinfeld style. Exactly. On Monday, he told reporters that he believed that next year's White Sox team will be ready to contend and that he trusts the front office to find the impact players to help them. So he's confident next season and he's showing... Uh, trust in Rick Conn and Kenny Williams. So good start. Today, a column from the Chicago Sun-Times, uh, Abreu is now leveraging a conversation that he's had with Chairman Jerry Reinsdorf. And this is Abreu, quote, Jerry several times has told me and my family that I'm not going to wear a jersey other than a White Sox jersey. I believe him. I believe in his word. And like I said, I'm very happy with and loyal to this organization. Hopefully, 
everything is going to pan out. And again, with Abreu's recent surge in August, where he has a 325 batting average, he's got an on-base percentage of 382, and he's slugging 613. And Abreu is still awesome with runners in scoring position, where he's hitting 331, 359, and slugging 600 with runners in scoring position. And again, Jim, Abreu's hot at the plate. He collected three more hits Wednesday afternoon after the story posted. And he's approaching another 100 RBI season. I think he's four RBI short right now. He's at 96. How does, though, getting Mr. Reinsdorf now involved with this public outcry and getting a new a new deal done help his cause? I don't know. I mean, like, I don't know one way or the other, um, given that the White Sox are just very weird and, and very loyal. <laughs> and uh, they just... They don't do things in the correct order with certain people or they don't, you know, they have different chains of command based on who's like so many people reported to different people when it was Kenny and Ozzy and Jerry and, and just had different loyalties uh, lay in different places. And it was just a mess. And I think they're still because Reinsdorf is so loyal and because uh, um, he's just oddly sentimental and doesn't really, as we talked about um, <laughs> earlier in the week, how he just doesn't really want to get to know new people. It seems like to just, he's very content to just stick with what works and what he knows or thinks works. And so it wouldn't surprise me if this were the case where he said it. And I could see Han just wanting to wait until the end of the season, just to make sure that Abreu finishes the year in full working order. Like he doesn't sign him like a two year, $25 million deal. Then all of a sudden Abreu tears his ACL at the end of the year. And um, just, yeah, they have to um, just completely you know, lose four or five months of next season with rehab and not knowing what kind of player he is. I think that's, I'm guessing that's where Han's coming from. And I guess Abreu just doesn't like thinking about it. So he's stumping for it a bit more, but I imagine that it really doesn't change all that much. And if Reinsdorf wants him here, uh, Han will find him a way to get him here or keep him here. And uh, yeah, it's just uh, a strange way the White Sox do business. Could this be like another Canerco situation? Well, uh, Canerco is good. Like at, at the end of a Canerco's career, he stayed like you, he was done the year, the second to last year he played. And there was really no good baseball reason to keep him around. Um, and he cost uh, Marcus Semien his roster spot, and the White Sox ended up trading him because they didn't know whether he'd be any good and just want to trade him while he still had some value. Um, so that was a case where he had you know real baseball impact, but I think you know, Brayu still has productive years ahead of him. So I could see it being Canerco in terms of sentimental and mm-hmm. where you know Reinsdorf's word it, you know um, you know dictates the day. But in terms of uh, getting in the way of other more productive moves, I don't see it being that case. Okay. Well, we'll be interested to see on what happens if this does help. Jose Abreu's case, again, we're not expecting a new contract signed by Jose Abreu with the Chicago White Sox until after the season is over and free agency uh, has begun. I, You still believe that he's not getting a qualifying offer, right? I don't think so. I think it would be probably... Once he made it through the season intact, maybe like a last series of the year thing. If they give a Bray like the series off, if he's not chasing any milestones, you know, maybe they do kind of a celebration. Hmm. Yeah. Cause if they change their mind, I mean, Jose Abreu has had quite the career with the White Sox. He's given everything that the White Sox asked for when they signed him to the largest free agent deal in team's history for six years, $68 million. 
Yeah, that's I didn't I haven't thought about that. If the White Sox change their mind on how how they say goodbye to Jose Abreu. Well, they finished the year at home, so I could see it being a last series of the year thing. A guess who's sticking around? Okay, hooray! Okay, that that would be you know what that that would make everyone happy. That would make a lot of White Sox fans happy. That would obviously make Jose Abreu happy. It would make the players in the clubhouse happy knowing that he's coming back, and it's something we can stop worrying about, and it doesn't linger into November or December or January, and it just is this cloud hanging over uh, the White Sox. Uh, I, I think the sooner they find a resolution, the better one way or another. So be interested to see if uh, Jose Abreu now bringing Mr. Jerry Reinsdorf into the mix publicly helps his cause. Coming up next, we're going to preview the upcoming four-game series as the Texas Rangers roll into town. But first, a quick word from our sponsor, SeatGeek. With millions of live event tickets and a price match guarantee, SeatGeek proves there's a better way in buying tickets. You can search for sports, live music, comedy, and more. SeatGeek has the tickets you are looking for all in one place. In an industry that tends to stagnate, SeatGeek decided to stand out from the crowd as they built the fastest way to find tickets so you could stop searching for the perfect seat and start enjoying it. And the White Sox have some really cool giveaways this upcoming weekend. They're giving away a beer stein on Saturday night, and the weather looks like it's going to be very nice. It's going to be Elvis night on Friday. That's always a big event, a packed house. So the White Sox are going to be playing in front of 30-plus thousand fans uh, especially Friday and Saturday night. If you want to be part of the crowd, uh, I use SeatGeek all the time to buy tickets for White Sox games. Uh, you can take advantage of SeatGeek's offer to save a little bit of money. Uh, if you've never used SeatGeek before, download their app onto your smartphone and use our promo code SOXMACHINE for $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Again, that's promo code SOXMACHINE for $10 off your first purchase on SeatGeek. And again, the Chicago White Sox are playing against the Texas Rangers for four games. The Rangers are starting to slide a little bit. There are three games below 500. They are 62 and 65 on the season in their last 10 games. They are three and seven. And again, the Rangers won the series at Arlington the last time these two teams played, uh, winning two out of three. And currently, as we are recording this, they are down by three runs to the Angels 7 to 4 in the top of the 7th inning uh, so the Rangers could be 62 and 66 as they come to Chicago. Your pitching problems for this series. Thursday could be a high scoring affair because the pitching matchup is not that great for either side. Ariel Hurado will be making the start for the Rangers in his last 7 starts. Hurado is 1 and 5 with a 7.71 ERA as right-handers are hitting 324 against him so the White Sox could feast against Hurado. And then on the mound for the White Sox is going to be Ross Deadweiler. Deadweiler has been pitching better in his starts for the White Sox, so we'll see if he can give him a good five innings before handing off to a bullpen. But again, that could be a high-scoring affair Thursday between the Rangers and White Sox. And we mentioned him many times, but Friday night, Lance Lynn, perhaps the leader in the American League Cy Young Award race, will be making the start for the Rangers against Dylan Cease, in which Cease, uh, again, a little bit inconsistent perhaps. He has that one bad inning. Uh, In his starts, we'll see if he can pitch a clean game, avoid the big inning against Texas, because it will be a tough night for the White Sox hitters facing Lance Lynn. We'll see how long Cease can keep the White Sox in the game. 
Over the weekend for Saturday and Sunday, the Rangers have not announced who will be starting their games. Well, the White Sox have. Saturday night, 6.10 p.m. Central Time, uh, Central Time. it is Beerstein night. It will be Yvonne Nova, who has just been awesome this second half of the season. And then on Sunday at 1.10 p.m. Central Time, it is Ronaldo Lopez, who tries to bounce back from his loss against the Minnesota Twins. And, you know, Jim, I feel like this is a series that the White Sox should easily split against the Rangers. Maybe they can win another series, three out of four. But I'm circling Friday night to see on how Dylan Cease handles another big matchup for him in his rookie season. Not just because of the Rangers offense. They've lost a little bit of firepower in the second half. But he's going up against someone that maybe is the leader for the American League Scion in Lance Lynn. Yeah, I'm looking at Cease's numbers real quick, um, checking the splits just because he will be starting a night game. And I'm trying to remember or trying to think of how many night games he started. Hmm. Really has not been many of them. Interesting. It's been mostly day games? Yeah, he's made two starts in night games, six starts in day games. And it's uh, bizarre just because I just remember uh, like his last start where I was actually being able to watch him in real time. Usually I have to watch him after work you know, skip through, uh, you know, all the between pitch sequence stuff in between innings and fast forward it. And I didn't, you know, I was watching it real time. And this will be another case where it's like, I'm actually watching Cease make pitches as he's pitching them. So it's pretty novel. So that'll be kind of fun seeing him pitch at night and seeing if it makes any difference in terms of just uh, how effective his stuff is and, and how he feels about it. But uh, Yohan Mankata coming back, that's also big. Uh, hoping he hits the ground right. He looked good in Charlotte. Uh, the way he was swinging the bat there. So hopefully that adds one more bat into Renteria's lineup and makes it a bit easier to fill out at least like the top five or six. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm hoping for a lot of runs. And looking at the the month the Rangers have had, they've been outscored by 30-something runs, depending on how this game wraps up tonight, um, in August alone. So they're susceptible to it. They have a lopsided rotation, and they lost Chris Martin for their bullpen, trading him away. So there's the possibility of scoring runs, and... Yeah, seeing Abreu uh, take his hot streak back with him to Chicago, that'd be cool. And uh, having Mankata come back and be at full strength would be uh, uh, quite refreshing to see. Yeah, we'll see what the White Sox do offensively. Again, there's there's going to be opportunities, depending on Saturday, Sunday. We'll see if Mike Miner starts one of those games. That could be another tough test for the White Sox. But Thursday, that first game, uh, I'm hoping that can ignite the offense they're starting to hit a little bit better, especially riding the backs of Tim Anderson and Jose Abreu. But you insert Yuan Mikata there. Does that open up other opportunities? Can Aloy Jimenez get going at home? Uh, hopefully they make it a very fun series because this weekend is going to see really good crowds for the White Sox, especially Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And it would be great if they could play well in front of the home fans to build up some excitement as we head Uh, as we inch closer to September already uh, in the season. So hopefully the White Sox have a great weekend, and hopefully on Monday, Sox Machine Podcast, we're talking about another White Sox series win. But that will do it for this edition of Sox Machine Live. Thank you guys so much for listening to the live stream at Mixler.com slash Sox Machine. If you don't get an opportunity to listen to the live stream, no worries. Every recording is uploaded into the podcast feed which you can subscribe to the podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and audioboom.com slash Socks Machine. Socks Machine Live is a production of SocksMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, 
I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. And now Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible x gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.